You are listening to a Writers at Stanton podcast. Every month, Stanton Library hosts some of the world's most exciting writers and thinkers to discuss their latest books. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to Stanton Library and the Writers at Stanton program, held in conjunction with the Constant Reader Bookshop at Crow's Nest. And there's Jay up the back. I'm Ian Hoskins, North Sydney Council's historian, and our writer today is Richard Feidler, who is here to talk about his new book, The Book of Roads and Kingdoms. Now, we are gathered on Camaragal land, part of the Australian East Coast taken for King George without treaty or compensation, first by James Cook in 1770, then by Arthur Phillip in 1788, when half the continent was declared as British territory. More specifically, Camaragal country entered the Sydney property market in 1794, when 30 acres around Kirribilli was granted to Samuel Lightfoot, who didn't bother living there. Um, All without negotiation with the local people, dispossession followed quickly. Right, Richard Feidler's last book, Golden Maze, was written after a great deal of walking and talking in Prague, the subject of the book. The Book of Roads and Kingdoms, Richard tells us, was begun at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, when physical travel suddenly became impossible. But the time travel that books allow meant that he could visit the Middle East, or Western Asia as Richard also calls it, in past ages. Indeed, his book takes its name from a 9th century traveller's tale. Through that work and many others, Richard wanders highways and byways from Baghdad to Bukhara and beyond. It is, of course, Richard's job today to summarise that, so I'll say no more except to congratulate him on his endnotes and a fulsome bibliography. I love a well-referenced book. I should also add that The Book of Roads and Kingdoms is Richard's fourth book, The Golden Maze, Ghost Empire and Saga Land with Kari Gislarsson. I think you spoke here with Kari some while ago. Yep. Have appeared since 2017. That's a good run rate. Yeah. Um, and um, And this Richard Feidler is not to be confused with the other Richard Feidler who writes about natural history in Michigan. Would that be right? Wow. Really? Yeah, there's another one. Okay, yes. I, I wasn't sure if that was you, but I suspected it wasn't. I'll have to have him killed. <laughs> <laughs> one last thing. This Richard Feidler is a man of the spoken word as much as the written. And as you may be aware, he has millions of listeners with the Conversation series um, broadcast and podcast through the ABC. So please join with me in turning off your mobile phones to silent, or at least putting them to silent, and welcoming Richard Feidler. Thank you very much for that lovely welcome. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. It's nice to be together again, isn't it? Assembled in the one place, talking to one another. It seems like we're all out and about again, and I could not be more happy. Um, As as Ian said, uh, the Book of Roads and Kingdoms, which um, has a splendid cover, and you should buy three copies uh, because each one's different, uh, is a a compendium, sort of like an Aladdin's cave, if you like, of adventure stories, some of them charming, weird, delightful, and some of them utterly horrific. And put together, these stories, I think, form a kind of crazy quilt atlas. They reveal a whole lost world of the early Middle Ages that was seen by the travellers who set out from that world's grandest and richest empire, the empire of the Abbasid Caliphs of Baghdad. Uh, this is a, one of the wonderful maps from the book. This is the Abbasid Caliphate at its greatest extent, bigger than the Roman Empire ever was. 
you can see it stretches uh, it's here, and then later on it comes around here to North Africa, then they sort of break away for a bit, but, but it also goes up into, uh, right up into Egypt, to Syria, Palestine, uh, all of Arabia, of course, going over into Iran, all the way to Central Asia, to Samarkand over the end there, and it eventually ends up at the Indus Valley. It's an astonishing empire that was won incredibly quickly. Of all the travellers I had, in, I, I sort of encountered by, in my reading for this, uh, the one I loved the most was a guy called Al-Masudi, or Masudi as I called him. Masudi was the most travelled man of his era. He'd been to China, to East Africa, to India, to uh, Constantinople. He had seen most of the known world. And he wrote a kind of compendious geography of that world, describing these far-off lands for people in Baghdad, and the descriptions of the people in them and their customs and the animals and everything there. But he also wrote wonderful uh, sketches of court politics of the time in the court of the caliph and stuff on the history of the Basid Empire as well. But one of the most delightful things I, I found of Masudi's writing, I put right at the very front of my book, and it's a, a special magic potion. I'm just going to read to you from it. This is how you become invisible. Anyone can do this. First, you must find a dead cat. The animal must have already died from old age or from some misadventure. You must not slaughter one for this purpose. Carefully remove the dead cat's head and hollow out its eyes. Then take it to a patch of ground in a place where no one is likely to visit. Dig a hole. The hole should be as deep as the distance from your elbow to your fingertips. Put some dung at the bottom, then place the cat's head inside the pit so it faces up to the sky. Now you must do this. In both eye sockets, place a castor oil seed, then fill the rest of the hole with dung, pat it down, sprinkle a handful of fine dirt around the edges in a circle, and then place a round stone on top. No one must see you do this. Every day, for the next 30 days, you must irrigate the site with blood. Now, this should be procured from a blood letter. Again, no creature should be harmed. If after 40 days, there, if there is a shoot from the soil, well, good. If not, continue watering it with blood for another 60 days. If it sprouts, good. If not, then continue watering it in this manner for 70 days. If not, then for 90 days. Tell no one of this. After a time, one or two plants may grow. When they begin to bear fruit, and this is crucial, you must not let the fruit fall from the tree to the ground. Instead, carefully harvest some seeds from the pods. And this should be done while the moon is waxing and not waning. Then you must climb up to a high place, like a rooftop, <coughs> excuse me, and sit there with the seeds in your lap. To your left, there must be a 14-year-old boy on the cusp of puberty. Uh, to your right, there must be another 14-year-old boy who is also not yet a man. Put one of the seeds in your mouth, then turn to the boy on your left and say, do you see me? If the boy says yes, then turn to the boy on your right and say, do you see me? And if the boy says yes, then you put another seed in your mouth. Now, repeat this process with each of the other seeds until you find the one seed that, when placed in your mouth, will make both boys answer no. <laughs> and they will likely say this with some astonishment. Then carefully place this special seed inside a signet ring concealed under a jewel and wear it on your finger. Then, whenever you want to wish to avoid someone in the marketplace, you just put the ring in your mouth and disappear. <laughs> Many people have done this and succeeded. 
I love that so much for two reasons. First of all, I love the idea of just being able to, using a ring of invisibility, not to go on these amazing journeys, but just to avoid people, your neighbours that you can't stand. Like, oh God, there's Jeff down there, Jesus, no, like that. And you're out like Frodo in Lord of the Rings, you know, you just completely disappear. And the other thing I love about this, I think this is not fair dinkum, I think this is a prank. I think this is a prank Masudi is playing on a friend or some gormless fool. Uh, because he wants to see them climb on top of a rooftop and ask some kids, am I invisible yet? <laughs> am I invisible yet? And the clue, I think, is the fact that he says, you must not kill a cat for this purpose. You must not kill anything to procure blood for it. So I think he wants no animals harmed in the making of this practical joke. This is the kind of colour and vibrancy of that, this world that I've chosen to write about at this time. Uh, like Ian said, this was my COVID book. I was planning on writing another book altogether. Normally, I like to go to a place, have an adventure, write a history around it. Uh, but that wasn't possible for any of us. And so I thought, uh, quite, as Ian said, I'd, I'd travel through time rather than across space. And I went looking for travellers, medieval travellers. I thought, well, look at the Vikings. They went everywhere. Uh, just look at them again. And I looked at stories of the Vikings who went through Eastern Europe and Russia. Not many people are aware of this, but the Vikings went to Eastern Europe and Russia as well and traded furs down the Russia's river system. And I found this account written by uh, a medieval Arabic diplomat called Ibn Fadlan of his account of meeting with a tribe of Vikings on the Volga River in modern-day Russia near the city of Kazan. Ibn Fadlan was a diplomat who was given uh, a role by his caliph, the Caliph al-Muqtadir in Baghdad in the year 932. CE, 932, the 10th century we're talking about here. He was made part of a diplomatic mission to go north out of Baghdad, north up through past the Caspian Sea to the Badlands there where it be, it's incredibly arid, gravelly deserts, a terrible place. And, and he, it's a bit of a heart of darkness story in a way because he's this kind of urbane, city-dwelling, cosmopolitan, cafe latte drinking urbanite and suddenly he's thrust out into this wilderness and it's freezing cold and he has to rely on the hospitality of the local Turkish tribes who are wonderful to him. They give him food, they look after him and he just bitches and moans about what bogans they are all the time. Eventually he gets all the way up to the Volga, to the city where he's supposed to meet a king there and negotiate his allegiance to the caliph. But then a group of Vikings arrive and at first Ibn Fadlan is just overcome by how beautiful they are. Um, he, he writes about how, oh, they look amazing. He says they're so tall and well-built and, you know, red and golden hair and they've got amazing tats that sort of go right up to their necks and they wear extraordinary clothes with beautiful, finely wrought jewellery. But day two, day two after meeting the Vikings, he goes, oh, my God, these people are so disgusting like this because he watches them perform their ablutions in the morning, which I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna sugarcoat this a little bit for you, because it is the middle of the day and you might not have had your lunch yet, but essentially it involved the chieftain of the Vikings being given a, a bowl of water by a slave girl, in which he uh, empties the contents of his nose into that, dips his comb into it, combs his hair, has a sip from it, and passes it on into the next guy, and he does the same thing. It's like, you know, Brits in the 1940s sharing dirty bath water all throughout the family. It's like, you don't want to be the last guy on that, well, even the first guy, to be perfectly honest. And then the Viking chieftain dies, and his senior men go to the chieftain's slaves. Ibn Fadlan's recording all of this, and they ask the slaves which one of them wants to be the slave to die alongside their dead master. And a, 
a slave girl puts her hand up. And the ritual he describes of what follows the next few days is, is one of the most harrowing things I've ever read in my life. Uh, she becomes like the bride of the dead chieftain for a while and she's given all this beautiful jewellery and has attendants to braid her hair and she's kept constantly drunk and then comes the time for her to be sacrificed. This is the, really the only proper full account of a Viking human sacrifice that we have. It's not really clear whether this was an actual cultural custom. It probably wasn't, but it seems to have taken place in this case. And the rite by which he's sacrificed alongside the dead chieftain in his longboat, inside a tent with brocaded silks, is, I think, one of the most um, strangest things I've ever read in my life, in, in all my reading of history. It's a rite that is so impregnated with magic and sex and blood and horror and delirium that I, I think the people who participated in that rite, who were there to witness it and participate in it, I think in that moment they travelled out to the very furthest extent of human existence. So when I read this account from Ibn Fadlan, I thought, oh, what other accounts are there by Arabic travellers and Persian travellers leaving Baghdad? Oh, my God, there's a vast trove of them. And we just don't know about them. We just, we just used to seeing Baghdad as this cratered-out hellhole, uh, when, in fact, back in the day, it was the biggest and richest city in the world, uh, the most cultured city in the world, even more so than Chang'an in, in China, and certainly much more than... Western European cities like London and Paris, which were sort of these muddy outposts at the time. And they were mad for travel and they were mad for writing and they wrote so much. They came, the Arabs, how they became this extraordinary empire, it was all achieved within less than 100 years through one of the most phenomenally quick, world-changing events that, uh, in human history. Uh, to begin with, this is, this is the world before the emergence of the Arabs united under this new faith of Islam. You can see that on the left there, there's the Empire of the Romans. This is the later Roman Empire. Some people call it Byzantium or the Byzantine Empire, ruled from Constantinople. And on the, to the east there, you can see the Sassanid Persians, the Sassanid Persian Empire. Originally from Iran, they made their capital in Tessaphon on the Tigris River. And they've got this amazing palace that's still standing there today, the ruins of it, the biggest unsupported brick arch in the world, still barely standing there. These were two powers that called themselves the two eyes of the world. They were incredibly cultured, uh, lots of technology, powerful religious uh, institutions and buildings, and they entered into a war, a, a kind of a suicide pact of a war that lasted for 20 years and left both empires utterly hollowed out and not paying attention to what was going on down here in the Arabian Peninsula, which was for them an area of no interest, a desert, wasteland, with feuding tribes of real, run by real tough guys, really hardened warriors, the Bedouin warriors of the area. So, no, we'll, we'll make some allies there, we'll just leave it alone, we're not interested in conquering it. But while they'd been fighting, the feuding tribes of the Arab world had been united under the Prophet Muhammad and electrified by his religious vision given to him, he said, by the angel Gabriel, and that became the words of the Quran. After his death, the first of his successors, the first caliph, Abu Bakr, decided, well, I've got to keep all the tribes happy, so we'll do some border raids. They did some border raids to their north around there, on the edge of the desert, on the, Arab, uh, on the Roman and Persian garrisons, and there's no one there. They fought themselves to a standstill. They're hollowed out. 
And before that, there was the plague that went through the area that depopulated as well. So in no time at all, these border raids became wars of conquest. And suddenly, bang, the Arab armies on camels and on horses and on donkeys overtook half the Roman Empire. Half the Roman Empire. Egypt at that point had been uh, Christian and a Roman territory. Uh, they invaded Egypt and it, it, it's been an Arabic uh, nation ever since. Well, uh, over time in any case. Right, right, racing right across North Africa, uh, they took uh, Syria and Palestine and, uh, and part of uh, Asia Minor there. And then they went east. And then they took the whole of the Sassanid Persian Empire and found themselves right out at Samarkand uh, in the furthest realm. And then they have the biggest empire the world has ever known, uh, has ever known uh, up to that point. The first capital of the caliphate was Medina, or Yathrib, as it was originally called there. Then, after the four original rightly guided caliphs, as they're known, there were the Umayyad dynasty based in Damascus. Then there was a revolution in the 8th century and a new dynasty, the Abbasids, took over and founded a new utopian capital on the Tigris River by the Caliph Mansur. And he, he built it as a kind of Canberra. It's kind of funny thing. It's like a purpose-built capital with a, a circular uh, focal point, like Capitol Hill, if you like. This was the round city where the colourful palace was and, the, and the, uh, the great mosque. And there were diagonal spokes coming out reaching to the four corners of the earth. And that's how I've divided this book, stories of travellers going north, south, east and west out of Baghdad into the out to the furthest reaches of the known world. Uh, the Caliph Mansur who built it was a great lover of mathematics and of Euclid and hence his love of these kind of grand geometric designs. And when it was built, it was considered a wonder. Uh, and at its completion, Mansur was said to have stood on one of the city gates, this one there, just in the northeast there, and said, here is the Tigris, and nothing stands between it and China. Now, everywhere throughout the new faith and the new ideology of the faith, there's this constant injunction to travel. On the back cover of my book, there's this phrase, go about the earth and look. This is a really often repeated phrase in the Quran. It's an injunction to go out and see for yourself. Go and see with your own eyes the world. The Prophet Muhammad was said to have told his followers at one point, seek knowledge even as far as China. And you're getting the idea now, perhaps, that this is a kind of an eastern-facing empire. Certainly it was since the shift to Baghdad, because that's where all the action and the money was in the early Middle Ages. Uh, I mean, the kind of history I got as a kid was very Western European face. Well, you know, people are chauvinistic in the way they, they present their history, but really that's a sideshow compared to the great, bustling, exciting, driven world of the early Middle Ages and the great empires and great cities, which were all in the East, from Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, of course, uh, Baghdad, uh, the empires of, uh, of Tang Dynasty China, India, Sri Lanka, uh, the kingdoms of East Africa down on the, uh, on the edge of the East Indian Ocean. This was a time not of a dark age, but of a time when the pulse starts to quicken, when there's ideas being exchanged back and forth, goods being exchanged back and forth, luxury goods being sold from China to Baghdad and then on to Western Europe. It's a time when people feel like the world is being made anew. Imperial Baghdad at its height, like I said, was the biggest and richest city in the world and the most fabulous of the caliphs, the best known of the Abbasid caliphs, 
was a man called Harun al-Rashid. Do people here remember reading the Thousand and One Nights, Thousand and One Arabian Nights as, as, as kids or as adults? This great compendium of, of stories. Uh, it came out of, originally out of India, then they sort of glommed together like, like a kind of a great big ball of stories that rolled onto Persia, to, to Iran, and then they came to Baghdad and accumulated more stories. And the two great stars, really, of the Thousand and One Nights is the city of Baghdad itself and its caliph Harun al-Rashid. And so many stories begin in the Thousand and One Nights with Harun al-Rashid sitting in the palace. It's like 10 o'clock at night. It's too hot to sleep outside. Harun al-Rashid says, I'm bored to his friends, and they go out into the great metropolis of Baghdad and they encounter a mystery or an adventure. I'm just going to read you another passage from the Book of Roads and Kingdoms, which sort of paints a little bit of a picture of the insane wealth and fabulousness of Baghdad from this time. Harun al-Rashid, tall, good-looking and slim, with wavy hair and olive skin, presided over an empire that stretched from North Africa to India. The English poet Tennyson would later fantasise about the golden prime of good Harun al-Rashid. And even in Harun's own time, Muslims could feel the sunshine of God's goodwill on their faces. Did you not see how the sun came out of hiding on Harun's accession and flooded the world with light? Asked one giddy poet. Harun al-Rashid was, in all likelihood, the wealthiest man who ever lived and spent his riches freely. On his wedding day, he handed out fistfuls of gold and silver coins to people from all over his realm, while his servants distributed brocaded gowns and scented oils from large glass bowls. To his wife, Zubaydah, he gave an ornate, ornate, an ornate sleeveless jacket, a badana, studded with oversized rubies and pearls. So great were the splendours and riches of his reign, wrote Masudi. Such was its prosperity that this period has been called the honeymoon. When Harun came to the throne, Baghdad had become the first medieval city to pass the population threshold of a million people. In the new districts of Rusafa, Shamasia and Mukarim on the east bank of the Tigris, princes, courtiers and merchants built palaces and mansions that outshone the grandeur of the Golden Gate Palace in the round city. While in Baghdad, Harun preferred to dwell in the Casa al-Kuld, the Palace of Eternity, overlooking the Tigris, so named for its gardens, which were said to rival those in paradise. Here, the caliph could find some respite from the heat of the day and the pressures of court life, sitting in the shaded pavilions of an immense flowered pleasure garden, surrounded by waterfalls and trees with precious gems studded into their trunks. The palace interiors facing the gardens had been decorated to subtly correspond with the colours blooming outside. One visitor later recalled entering an audience hall that was carpeted with pink fabric and attended by servants in matching pink silks, which looked out over the treetops of a garden that had burst into leaf with roses and peach and apple blossoms. I'm going to end my talk here because it's 20 minutes and I'm really happy to take any questions you have. I've got so many stories packed into this book. A voyage out the east that ended up very likely in the Great Wall of China. A voyage that went to Charlemagne, the king of the Franks in uh, modern-day Germany. Voyages down around the South Seas following the Indian Ocean monsoon trade routes down to East Africa where some coins fetched up in Australia, in, in Australia weirdly enough. There's whole lots of stories here, but I'm really happy to take any questions you have now. And we have uh, a microphone. Thank you. Sorry, uh, uh, 
Well, um, we're kind of still in the age of COVID, aren't we? So maybe rather than passing this around, if you can just speak loudly and maybe Richard, you oh, could okay. I'm happy to repeat, repeat yeah, the question sure. because this is being recorded and therefore okay. whoever listens to it afterwards will hear the whole thing. Happy to. Hello. Oh, that is in Tessaphon. Tessaphon, that's, that, Tessaphon is um, the old capital of Sassanid Persia, and it's, it's a scattered ruin now. It was seized by the Arabs in their conquests. It exists on the Tigris River in Mesopotamia, which, is, which was, and maybe still is for all I know, the lushest agricultural uh, land in the world. And it was the same zone where uh, Babylon had once been. And so in the decision to build... Uh, Baghdad on the Tigris River. It's just, it's not far up. I think it's about 20 miles upstream uh, on the Tigris from Tessaphon, the old capital. Uh, in building it there, they were very conscious of the fact that, first of all, the agriculture could sustain a huge, large population city. And second, they really felt they were in the neighbourhood of greatness being in these places that are mentioned in the old books of the Bi oldest books of the Bible as well. So that's Tessaphon. What, what was your second one? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to be. How can, how can I beat this book? I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, I don't know. I'll, I, I just tend to wander around through my reading and go, oh, oh, just sort of kind of follow my nose and sort of sniff around and go, oh, that sounds interesting, and read that and go, what else is there? And yeah, I tend to find, if, if I follow my nose, I'll find something. I had, I had no intention to write this book at the outset of COVID. I was going to write another book entirely. And I just sort of wandered around and found a little door that opened little door and sort of crept through it and there was all this stuff that I should have been aware of but I wasn't. This great trove of material. There's a question over there. Hello. Uh, yes, I've mastered medieval Arabic. Um, uh, my question was, um, how did I find my sources and were they in English and where did, where did I find them? Well, this is the thing. When I was writing my first book, Ghost Empire, which is a history of the later Roman Empire, a history of Byzantium, mixed in with my journey with my son there from um, about eight years ago, um, there are all these accounts of like the Arab siege of Constantinople in the early 8th century. And there's some ref I found some oblique references to the, uh, the Arabic sources on this, and I thought, oh, they'll probably be like the Persian sources, really scant and destroyed by what, you know, the, the destruction of Baghdad. Oh, my God. I'm really embarrassed by that now. Once I started looking for sources, there's a vast trove there. There's a vast trove, and all in translation, in English. They, um, there's Al-Tabari's gigantic... Uh, I think 34 volumes he wrote in his lifetime. He was a chronicler of the period, living in, uh, as a court historian in Baghdad. Uh, he wrote a, a history of the, of the Muslim people, going like from the birth of the earth to right up to the, I think it was the caliph before the time of his writing. And he's a good historian, certainly by medieval standards. He's a terrific historian. And so you read his stuff and, and he's critical where he needs to be. He's really on the ball. There was Masudi who I found. Masudi wrote this wonderful book, it was this, the geography I was talking about of the whole world, but also the kind of history of the caliphs as well. Uh, and it's got a lovely title. It's called, um, it's called Meadows of Gold and Mines of Gems. Oh, isn't that lovely? And so you have other books called the, books, the Book of Gifts and Rarities. They're all 
written like they should be a precious jewel. And I wanted this to look like a precious jewel as well as best it can. Um, so I, I found this uh, a complete over, over treasury of, of stuff that I should have known about. I don't think anyone knows about it. I, I get this question very often, actually. Where, where did you find all your sources? Well, it's all there, uh, digitised, hidden away in remote libraries and various corners of the internet. Um, and it was such a pleasure. I, I, in my acknowledgements, the main acknowledgement is to these writers that um, kept me very sane and happy when we couldn't go out and associate with one another, to be in the company of these brilliant, clever, funny, occasionally bawdy uh, uh, writers was just a joy for me in this period. So there was no shortage of uh, uh, contemporary sources from the period. One. Yes, sir. It's nearly all about the caliphs and the great people, uh, the rebel leaders as well, the insurgents that troubled the caliphate from time to time to the point that they, where they nearly knocked it over. But you can, there's one cast of people who appear that are from the slave class that make a really powerful impression that appear in the histories and they also appear in the, the chatty sort of chronicles of the time, the gossipy documents of the time. And that's a cast of people, they were the female slave singers a great stall was held in these women. It was very hard to find women's voices and almost impossible to find women speaking directly. Often you hear from them through the other voices of men. This was really hard for this book in particular. Largely this is because, of course, noble ladies were, were sequestered in the harem, a space that was kind of like a virtual city of women in Baghdad, uh, ruled often by the queen mother of the day. And only the caliph and eunuchs could enter that, that space, this huge space. But there was this cast of slave singers, female slave singers, and they were, they were kind of needed because having sequestered all the women, men got together and got bored with each other's company and went, oh, it'd be really nice if we had some female company from time to time just for the conversation. So there was this... The, the, the slave singers were talented uh, girls that were discovered who were, had musical talent at an early age. At a young age, they were sent to Medina in, the, in Arabia, in the peninsula, to go to a, a, several conservatoriums there of music where they were learnt, they taught music theory, history and, and practice, uh, learning to play the oud, the, uh, the, the Arabic lute, and learning the vast trove, by rote, of the vast trove of Arabic poetry. And they were also taught to be able to just to coin poetry, poetic couplets on the, on, the, on the fly, which was astonishing. And so by the time they're ready to go, the, the, the best of these women were regarded as kind of goddesses, even though they were slaves. Now, I don't want to overstate the degrees of freedom they had. They were effectively a cast of geisha, geisha women. Um, the fact that they were slaves meant that they were, had to be sexually available to their master. But strictly speaking, Islam prohibited uh, them being available to any, anyone else. Nonetheless, you see so many court documents by Masudi and other people where they say, oh, this slave singer, my God, she was so funny last night. She was witty. She had these great put-downs. She was so charming. And occasionally she could sing a song about love that just floored us. Like, they, they, you can see the same veneration I used to feel about Kate Bush when, <laughs> when I was a teenager. And, and, and quite frankly, I still feel today. And, and I could never interview her because I think I'd... I'd I, do my, I interviewed her like that, I think I'd be like, like... And I'd just revert to a spotty teenager again, I think. Um, but, but these women do appear, and they are admired for their, 
their literary and musical genius, their brilliant conversations. So it's hard to find them. But again, the other people from the under, underclasses that pop up are often the rebel leaders that suddenly come out of nowhere. Uh, there was a slave revolt in uh, Iraq, southern Iraq, around where Basra is, uh, a slave revolt, the, Z the revolt of the Zanj. The Zanj were the name, the name they com commonly use for African people. Uh, that's a whole fascinating period. They were led by, not, not by an African slave, but by a, I don't know, a guy who really struck me as being like a, a medieval Marxist in a way. He managed to lead this rebellion that was very successful and almost toppled the whole caliphate. Again, this is a great story. It's a huge epic story that's largely unknown in the wider world. Yeah. Hello. Um, you, you asked if, if I could talk about the book I abandoned and if I would pick it up again. I was going to write something about Russia <laughs> and about its kind of complex and difficult history and I was doing a lot of reading. I was going to write about something more specific than Russia, but um, uh, I couldn't go there. I was planning to go and I, I couldn't go because of COVID. And quite frankly, since the invasion of Ukraine, I still revere so much of Russian culture. And I'm, I'm not meaning this about the Russian people themselves, although I, I read a wonderful line by the uh, writer and historian Anne Applebaum, who said that Russians are, you, have become accustomed to looking at their government through their fingers, which is a really good phrase, I think. Um, oh, at the moment, I'm just so, so annoyed by it, uh, to say the least. I'm just not really in the mood to do that book. I might come back to it at some point down the track. There's one over there. Hello. Hi. Uh, Richard, is this just a story about uh, power and, um, and culture and travel, or is it, are there themes of technology transfer and knowledge transfer? There is. One of the... Uh, sorry, is this a book that's uh, just about power and, and goods, or is it about knowledge and technology transfer? There is. When Baghdad was established, this huge, amazing... Uh, series of cascading events, technological events, overlapped each other in Baghdad at the same time that created a, a gigantic intellectual ferment. The first thing was the caliphs in Baghdad set up a thing called the Bayt al-Hikmah, the, uh, the House of Wisdom, which was a royal library, the House of Wisdom. Isn't that great? Uh, there was like a library and a university and a translation centre because straight away they were absolutely obsessed with translating the, Greek, the wisdom of the ancient Greeks and of the ancient Indians. So texts were brought into Baghdad and translated and copied and copied and copied and disseminated throughout Baghdad. The second thing that happened was a new kind of Arabic cursive was invented, which allowed, uh, it was more, more fluid and it allowed people to knock out copies of books much more quickly. The third thing that happened was the uh, adoption of Indian numbers. Now, we, these are the numbers we use today uh, that are used all over the world that we call Arabic numbers, but they're actually from India. We call them Arabic numbers because they were introduced uh, to Europe from the Arabic world. But the simple, elegant one, two, three, four, five, and so on uh, replaced Roman numerals. And just think for a moment uh, how much ease of use that brought to the world as anyone who's tried to divide MCDXXVII into equal portions of LDVI <laughs> will instantly be able to grasp. So suddenly you had this uh, explosion of mathematics. Mathematics. Just, and accountancy and business as well can suddenly be done as, in a gif by this elegant set of numerals. 
And the final thing was the adoption of Chinese paper-making technology. This was maybe the most important innovation of them all. Uh, the Chinese had been making for centuries paper by getting uh, plant pulp and putting it on a screen, flattening it and drying it. And so suddenly you have this perfect writing service that's incredibly cheap to make. Before that, in that part of the world, they've been using papyrus, which you can easily scrub clean, and that meant documents can be forged with paper. The ink seeps into the paper, and it's much harder to forge documents. Or they were using parchment made out of animal skins and writing on those, like the Icelanders did in writing the sagas. But with paper, suddenly you have this ultra, ultra cheap medium that you can do this with. You can flip through it, and it's durable, cheap, and they found that when you had a sheaf of papers for a book, you put them in a stack, you bind them along one edge, you get a codex, in other words, a book, uh, which is so much easier to, and compact, and so much easier to find information in than a scroll, for example. So all these innovations at once meant there was this vast sort of nuclear explosion of books in Baghdad, and it became, even more so than Chang'an in China, the leading intellectual centre of the world. Whole districts of the city were given over to uh, book writing, uh, uh, book selling, and, and book copying as well. So this was the major technolo technological innovation of the age. Another question? Hello. Um, this is your fourth book? Yes, this is my fourth book. That's a very good. Have I developed as a writer over those four books? That's a very good question. It's something I'm thinking about all the time because writing books seems to be getting harder, not easier. I, I, I look back at how blithe I, blithely I wrote the first two books and the, the second one with Kari Gislason. Um, and I had Kari there with me to help me write. He's actually, apart from being having a doctorate in medieval Icelandic studies, which so many people here today have as well, I, I'm, I'm well aware of that. Um, he also teaches creative writing, and so it was great to have him. But when I wrote the, um, the Golden Maze, my history of Prague, I have Czech friends um, who are writers and people I really care about. And, oh, my God, the thought of writing something that was just carelessly stupid or just a bit glib uh, just terrified me. So it kind of meant I really slowed down the whole writing process to write it. I'm still trying to find a way to go a bit to... Uh, I, 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 yeah, I'm trying to find out a way to write, knock out sentences more quickly and go back and, and rework them and rework them and rework them and sand them back a bit rather than build them up by, bit by bit by bit again. So, yeah, I, I think uh, uh, Richard Flanagan's a very good friend of mine and he talks it with me about this as well. He said, uh, I said, yeah, it seems to get harder. He goes, oh, yeah, mate. He says, yeah, it's terrible. He says, you write your first book and it's like having sex when you're 16, he says. <laughs> And it just gets harder and harder after that, <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> yeah. You, sir. Hello. Uh, when did the caliphate decline and what led to its fall? Harun al-Rashid's era and there, around about that period is the moment when the caliph is like an emperor and a pope at the same time. He's the commander of the faithful, but also this kind of uh, temporal emperor of this great empire. But within 100 years or so, um, they were forced to rely more and more on mercenaries, Turkish mercenaries, that then became the real power. It's like the Roman Empire. It's really the same story written again and again. Uh, and eventually they became captives of their own armies. There was a temporary move of the capital north to a, a city called Samara. And there they were effectively the hostage of their own armies. And over time, the caliph retained his uh, spiritual importance and significance as the commander of the faithful, 
sort of a bit like a pope, if you like, um, but lost his, didn't really have much of, so much of an army. And as the centuries went on, um, the, a new empire arose very, very quickly in northern Central Asia, which was the empire of the Mongols, led by Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan, uh, I'm not a revisionist about Genghis Khan. There's a bit of revisionist history around at the moment saying, well, you know, there, there was a thing called the Pax Mongolica, the, 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 the Mongol Khan armies, conquests opened up East and West trade, and there was, the West could meet China properly for the first time and all that. Oh, God. Oh, my God, the body count. Holy, oh, I mean, just the sheer horror of that. And eventually, uh, the armies of his, an army led by Genghis Khan's grandson, named Hulagu Khan, uh, was told to subdue the remaining Muslim kingdoms. And he, it took two years for him to bring his vast um, army of uh, horse archers and warriors east from Karakoram down through past the mountain passes and, and into the Middle East. The first thing they did was to take out a, several castles that belonged to a, a Shiite sect, um, Shiite? Yeah, Shiite sect called the Assassins. This is where we get the word Assassins from, um, who were known to practice terrorist attacks on. They, would, they, they stabbed and killed several caliphs and several kings in the area and they took them out easily, and then they came to Baghdad. And the last of the Abbasid Caliphs was kind of a very foolish prince who imagined that if this upstart dared uh, try to take Baghdad, the whole of the Muslim world would rise up as one in, in, and just the countless army of Muslims would appear and thwart him and knock him back, and that's not what happened. Baghdad, the reason why I can't go to Baghdad is not because it's, just because it's difficult to get there at the moment, it's because not a bit of it remains of Imperial Baghdad. The armies of Hulagu Khan utterly destroyed that city and murdered everyone in it. It was an absolute terrible apocalypse. And this is not fanciful. There are various accounts from different sources, contemporary witnesses who saw the whole thing, from Persian historians and others as well. And this is the, the tragedy at the end of my book, um, the poignancy and the horror, the horror of it all. At the end, the, the last of the caliphs, al-Mustasim, the, the Mongols had a superstition which was you shouldn't shed royal blood because if a drop of royal blood fell on the earth, it would cause earthquakes. So instead they rolled him in a carpet and had him trampled to death by horses. Uh, uh, he, he, got, he got off lightly compared to everyone else in the city, though, it must be said. It was, it's a terrifying thing. They, they also raised the city, another city that no one's ever heard of, called Merv in Central Asia. Merv uh, was once the biggest city in the world. Fabled gardens built on this gorgeous oasis that people raved about all the time, raised to the ground by the Mongol armies. Uh, uh, it, yes, so that's the kind of the apocalypse that ends my book. But I do make the point, though, that even as Baghdad was being destroyed, Cairo was emerging as the new kind of capital of the, of the intellectual capital and financial capital of the Arabic world. And it was in the bookshops of Cairo that the tales of the Thousand and One Nights were coming together in their current form, being placed alongside the adventures of Sinbad and Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves. And so medieval Baghdad and the Golden Age of Islam endures as an immortal city of the imagination. Um, and it's there in the Thousand and One Nights. The great Argentinian writer, um, Jorge Luis Borges, wrote a beautiful essay on the Thousand and One Nights. And he said... A thousand, in the language of the day, and even today, a thousand sounds like an infinity. And then you have a thousand and one. So it's infinity plus one. 
He says these are one of the great works, gifts to, the, to world literature and culture, and I think he's absolutely right. So that's what remains is the Thousand and One Nights, the memory of Baghdad, this kind of colourful, heightened, delirious memory of Baghdad at its height. Uh, yes, hello. Uh, the Arab schools and universities preserved the works of Aristotle which came back through, back into Europe. They'd lost, they'd lost all knowledge of Aristotle, came back in through Europe, through Spain in the 12th century. Is there any literature, that, Arab literature, that records the interaction between the Crusades and the, the Arabs? There is, but um, I, I avoided that because the Crusades didn't really come to Baghdad. I had to keep focused on Baghdad, and I'm sort of mindful of the Crusades. When I get to the end of the book, I'm kind of mindful of this kind of ruckus going up over here in this corner of the earth up in, in Syria and, and Palestine at the time. But um, I, I just think... just. Try not to get distracted and write everything about everything at the time. Um, but what you said about Aristotle is, of course, absolutely correct. And um, I might be able to find it. There's a wonderful story um, written by al-Masudi of, um, of a dream of one of the caliphs. Uh, he had a dream about encountering Aristotle. They admired him the most. He, above everyone else, was the most admired of the ancient philosophers. And his works were constantly translated and copied uh, everywhere. Here we go, this is it. There was, um, the, this is the son of Harun al-Rashid, the Caliph Mamun. There was an anecdote told by a Baghdad bookseller to explain why philosophy and science flourished during Mamun's reign. It was said that the Caliph had a peculiar dream one night. He was wandering through his palace when he found a strange man sitting on his throne. He asked the man who he was. I am Aristotle, he said. Caliph Mamun, who admired Aristotle above all other philosophers, was overjoyed. He asked if he could put a question to him, and the Greek sage said that he could. What is goodness? The caliph asked. Goodness is that which reason deems to be good, Aristotle replied. And then what? Said the caliph. He replied, goodness is that which the law deems to be good. And then what? Goodness is that which the mass of people deems to be good. And then what? Said the caliph. And Aristotle replied, and then there is no more then. <laughs> That's such a really beautifully sketched bit of philosophical inquiry. Where, how do we know that something is true? And it's, well, because reason says it's true, or the law says it's true, or the majority of people say it's true, which, of course, living in the age we do, we know that's not true at all. <laughs> We've got time for one more, Richard, I think, okay. in that chap there. Hello. Yeah. What technology do I use to write? How do I find my way to information? I use the wonders of search engines. And the, um, I, I, you look for kind of key phrases, that if things that interest you, some phrases that have a kind of a piquancy. And then it's like a following a detective trial. History's like, there, there are so many accounts, so many chronicles of the period written by contemporaries or people who lived around about the same time. And they, it's full of information. And you can find a way through a forest, I suppose. It's like finding... You can get... If you're in the middle of a forest, 
you can find your way out any way from it, really, by threading your way, choosing a path between the most interesting trees is what I've, what I've tried to do. I am biased in favour of what interests me and what elicits my curiosity. The, the most... Um, the, the, the chapter I had the most enjoyment writing was the East chapter. And I followed my nose and I ended up in a wholly different place than I expected to be. I found an account written by a man called Salam the Interpreter, who was given a mission from the Caliph of the day, Caliph Alwatik, in the 830s. Who had, he had a dream that the wall of Gog and Magog in the east, far away in the northeast of the world, the badlands of the world had collapsed. And the monsters of Gog and Magog were about to overrun the holy cities of the world and bring on the apocalypse. And he was troubled by this, so he ordered an expedition to go out to the wall of Gog and Magog and see if it was still standing. Now, the wall of, existence of the wall of Gog and Magog and the apocalypse beasts that lay behind it was just commonly accepted by Muslims, Christians and Jews of the time. There are references to it in the Bible, and there's a very uh, specific reference to it in the Quran. And it was thought that that wall of metal bricks, this giant wall between two mountains, had been built by Alexander the Great. This was, he appears in the Quran as the two-horned one. That's how he's named. And so this mission was sent out to find the wall of Gog and Magog to see if it was still standing. And the way he wrote about it was, was kind of fascinating. He said, well, we sent out of Baghdad, uh, Samara, and then we went up to, into, through Ray, which are all these recognisable place names. We went to Tiflis, which is modern-day Tbilisi in Georgia and the Caucasus region. Then he gets very oblique. He says, after then we entered a black and putrid land. Black and putrid land. Then we passed into a realm where there was ruined cities, ruined by the monsters of Gog and Magog. Then after many, many days, we arrived in a place called Eagle, and from there it was a day's march to the wall of Gog and Magog. And we found it, he said, and it's just like it is in the Quran, a gigantic metal wall, metal bricks, um, and there's several garrisons there to protect it. He said every day the garrison rides out, Three times a week they ride out and with big hammers on the wall and they go bang, bang, bang and they say if they can hear the monsters behind going they know it's all fine. Okay, it's all terrific. The monsters are where they should be. The apocalypse is on. And he sees this happen and he goes back to, to Samara to the caliph and says it's all fine, uh, a commander of the faithful, all tickety-boo, nothing to worry about. Now, this for a long while was thought to be a crazy wonder tale. And we know there is no wall of Gog and Magog. We know the monsters of Gog and Magog do not exist. Where did he go? Did he go anywhere? Well, we know these places, Tiflis, like I said, the Caucasus, black and putrid land. Now, this is my little contribution to this, this uh, uh, line, of, uh, line of argument, which is that up around near the Caspian Sea, you enter the Karakum Desert. Karakum means black sands. The Karakum Desert is famous for its black shale sands, black and putrid. It's also famous for its gigantic methane deposits that are honeycombed underneath the desert floor. There was a big Soviet gas rig that was built there. This is in modern-day Uzbekistan now. The Soviets built a big, gigantic gas rig, and thanks to the wonders of Soviet engineering, it just fell into the hole at some point in the 1970s. Yeah. So, yeah, write a book about Russia. That's what I keep thinking. Um, and, it, and they went, oh, they went, oh, what are we going to do with all that gas? They go, oh, we'll just light it and burn it off. It's still burning today. 50 years later, it's still burning. They call it the gateway to hell, and tourists go to visit it now. So is this the black and putrid land? The ruined cities of Gog and Magog. Well, you go past there, you go through the Pamir Mountains passes into Kashgar, China's westernmost city. And that sits on the rim of the legendary Taklamakan Desert. The Taklamakan is one of the most inhospitable places on Earth, and the Silk Roads bifurcated at this point to go around the north or the south of it. 
rather than go into it. Marco Polo wrote about the dangers and the, hallucin uh, the hallucinations he experienced in the Taklamakan. And my thesis is that the, these ruined cities are actually these lost Buddhist cities that are still there under the sands in the Taklamakan Desert. They were once fed by a river that dried up or changed course and people left and they're full of these stunning Buddhist statues and frescoes. Um, and this led me to 20th century archaeologists who, in the early 20th century, people like Mark Oral Stein, Langdon Warner, who was an American archaeologist who Indiana Jones is based on, who came into the area and stole a whole bunch of stuff, took a lot, a lot, of, a lot of stuff, which today has made them great villains in the eyes of the Chinese government. Uh, and this led me to a yet another story that I remembered because they, they, they took stuff from another Chinese city nearby called Dunhuang. Uh, actually, I'll finish the first part of that story first. My hypothesis is that uh, Mark Orlstein, the British archaeologist, got out there and he identified these huge mats of luwai weed and towers as the westernmost reaches of the Great Wall of China. The Wall of Gog and Magog looks nothing like it's described in the Quran, but... You know, what's he going to do? If he, if he went out all the way to the Han Great Wall of China, you don't go back and say, oh, I'm sorry, I commanded the faithful. It's nothing like it is in the Quran. It, uh, no, you go, oh, no, it's just like it is in the Quran. <laughs> it's just ter terrific. So I, I found this, and it led me all the way to the 21st century. And in Ma April, I went into the British Library and found one of the scrolls that was taken from this area. It's the oldest printed book in the world. It's a copy of the Diamond Sutra uh, from the Buddha. And I took a photo of that, and that's in the book. So you don't know where you're going to find, where your nose is going to lead you when you start going on these adventures, I find. I think Great. I'm going to wrap it up now. No, no, I'm Great hanging on. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, Richard. It's a real Please. pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're here to sign some books too. I am. I will sign whatever books you want to put in front of me. I will. Okay, great. As long as I've written them. We'll head up the back <laughs> and get your book signed. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed spending your time with us. Catch up with more of our audio recordings and relive the discussion, insights and laughter of writers at Stanton. To find out more about our other events and programs, please visit www.northsydney.nsw.gov.au forward slash library. Thank you for listening. Thank you.